Hi, Eric. Hi, how's it going, Aaron? I'm good. So are you on your porch? Uh, no, I'm actually in my bedroom. Oh, you're in your room. Okay. Yeah. So you're not breaking curfew? No. <laughs> Although it's, it's unofficial. I don't know what it is in Alameda County, but in Contra Costa County, there was an unofficial curfew beginning at eight an hour ago. From what I understand, it's official. Like um, Berkeley Labs had to like essentially evacuate their night crew. <laughs> they didn't well, have many. Real chaos in Alameda County. So yeah, they didn't have many people up there anyway because of the pan the ongoing pandemic. But yeah, um, yeah so curfew. So um, we're going to be probably ending our conversation on that topic. So that's <laughs> I think that's where we're headed, though, right? Yeah, uh, that lets me know that you don't want the introduction I wrote, so uh, I'll hang on to it. Let me know. Yeah, I'll hold on to it. Well, I don't know, man. Why don't you do? Why don't you do it? We'll see if it's better it? than mine. So, so you were gonna say hi, Eric, and I was gonna say hi, uh -huh. Aaron, uh -huh. and then unfortunately I had the wrong window open, so I couldn't go on to say it's exciting to be talking with you here, Aaron, at the end of American democracy. <laughs> An autocrat sits on the throne. We're in the midst of a pandemic. We've witnessed the National Guard marching down suburban streets with militarized police to shoot at our fellow citizens as they stand on their porches for the crime of filming them. Anyone sitting in Zoom Sunday school the next couple weeks complaining that keen men have nothing to do with their lives are, if I may be blunt, really bad at reading. That's, uh, that's intense. Yeah. That's, the way <laughs> that's um, uh, I think it's a good way to start. Um, yeah, we saw our president holding a Bible today in front of a church. Yes. And in yes. order, he had gassed a bunch of people to so make we're room. We're not for doing that anything church. violent. Yeah, a bunch of non front of the church. A bunch of nonviolent protesters got tear gassed and moved away from the church so we could take that photo. And I saw a tweet that the 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 person in charge of that building was pretty upset <laughs> that they had used it as a prop. Oh, I I would imagine so. <laughs> yeah. I'm seeing a lot of things on Twitter. Um, lots of unhappy people. I mean, we should yeah. give some context. We're recording this on the 1st of June in 2020. Yeah. And um, it's the day it's after the riots, the weekend of riots that we just had, right? Yeah, and I, I kind of hate that we're calling them riots, although it's not totally inaccurate. Uh, but the thing I don't like about the word riot is it suggests that people want to break things. And there are some people that want to break things, but that is not the purpose of why people who began hitting the streets hit the streets. Yeah. It's a um, very confusing situation. And the commentary and the narratives and the, the stories that are being told about the protests and about the violence and about the police brutality are all mixed up. And it's hard to even keep track of what the individual threads are. Well, and it's hard also when our purpose as America is to be the bright shining light on the hill, to be the, the last moral point of goodness in this decrepit world. And if our goal is to hold on to that story, it becomes very difficult to be honest about our problems. Bioshock Infinite is one of the best games ever made. <laughs> yes, I've heard that from more people than just you. Okay, so I wanted to start the show here. We're going to come back. We're going to end talking about the racial problems that we just were describing. Um, but I want to start with Bioshock Infinite because it's one of my favorite games of all time. So I remember when it came out, even though I don't play games. 
Okay, it so big enough deal that I knew about it. What we're going to do is we're going to put in the show notes two links. Okay, one link is just my favorite trailer, and it's just got great music and it just showcases the game. But the other is a review um, from GameSpot, right? And it's by Kevin Van Ward. And it just kind of nicely summarizes the game without giving any, any spoilers. And the thing that is great about it is the way the review starts is that Bioshock Infinite will make you uncomfortable. <laughs> okay? And what it is, is it's a story about, you know, in 1912 or so, um, a man named Booker DeWitt who has sent to the city of Columbia, which is a city that floats in the sky on balloons. Okay? <laughs> And he has a gun, and he, he ascends to the city where he's trying to find this girl and bring her back to his employers. And he doesn't know why, and it's a big mystery. And it becomes more and more fantastical. But while he's up there, what he sees is a society that has elevated the um, respect and admiration that we as Americans have for our founding fathers to a religious level. So right. when you when I told you about this, you sent me this picture of the apotheosis. The apotheosis. Uh, I think it's apotheosis. <laughs> the apotheosis of I Washington. Is, I believe is the pronunciation. <laughs> All right. I showed this picture to the missus, and I asked her, "Okay, can you? Do, what do you see here? You know, it looks like this beatific scene, right?" Sure, it and sure does. Right in the middle of it is George Washington on a cloud, right? Yes, in the place of Jesus, where you might expect him, where this, you know, the Vatican or something. Yeah, and it's this beautiful painting, and I asked her where she thought it was, where she thought it was. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and when I told her that it was the, it was the Capitol building's rotunda, she was surprised. <laughs> <laughs> and I want you to compare that picture, which again, we're going to put in the show notes, to the following picture. Ah, okay. So now we're back to Bioshock. Yeah. So tell me what you see. Okay. Well, there is there. Unfortunately, they shot this image just as the virtual sun was shedding, mm-hmm. setting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I believe I recognize Father Washington and Father Jefferson and Father. Is that Franklin? Uh, it is Father uh, Franklin. Yeah, that's right. They're holding um, what I assume to be some sort of. Let's see. I see a sacred key on that Franklin is holding. Washington has a sword. I'm going to assume that's the sword of Laban. Uh, <laughs> Father Jefferson, I'm not sure. Maybe that's a telescope. I'm not, it's a I'm scroll. Not it's a scroll. a scroll. It's wonderful there, iconography is what it is. There are three persons who are Call bowing to Father Washington. Pilgrims, dressed all in white. Yeah, um, in the game, if you walk up to them, you'll hear them praying directly to Father Washington. Yes. The so, civic religion, we call it. Civic religion, right. So, um, like I said, I love this game. So you start the game, you're baptized by these people, and they almost drown you, and you wake up in this environment called this place of Eden, and you're surrounded by the by worship of our founding fathers. And um, I think that if you would put the... the um, a, Oh man, try to say it again. Apotheosis. apotheosis. The apotheosis of Washington next to this picture. 
that it'd be hard pressed to say which one came from the game and which one came from the capital. Yes. The, the only way we can tell us the one is, is 3d CG and the other one is, is oils or fresco or something. Actually, I can't tell what it is. It probably says in the article. We love our uh, founding fathers. It is a fresco. What I'm trying to <laughs> we say. We do. Yeah. And, and it is absolutely appropriate to love a person, right? When they, and, or to appreciate the good things a person does. However, um, it's a dangerous, dangerous road to worship at the Church of Moses, right, instead of the Church of Christ. Ah, I believe you're citing the Book of Mormon. I am. I'm a big fan of the Book of Mormon. I will probably mention it a lot. In fact, I mentioned it earlier when I mentioned the King Men. Right, I was trying to ask you who the King Men are. Yeah, it's, it's a book for our day, and um, I am, have always been sympathetic to people who feel that Alma is, is long and boring and the same thing over and over again, but never have I felt the urgency of the messages in Alma as I feel them today. Mm-hmm. Um, there are people who want power. And yeah, that, that, I mean, that's the nature of the world. Like it, we, it would be shocking if it weren't true. That is, that is what history has always been. There's always been people who wish to have power over other people. All right. That's so one of the great things about Washington, actually. But one of the yeah. things that's remarkable about him is that after two terms, he stepped down and, and set a, a standard of, of humility and not finishing, um, you know, not, not lasting until you died. Um, and I think that in many ways, we owe Washington the last 200 plus years of democracy. Um, but all good things come to an end. <laughs> Um, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> okay, so listen, I love the Founding Fathers. I think they're really cool. I think that they have problems, but I think generally um, I look past those problems and I just respect them as all the work that they did, just as a person. Yeah. Um, in the game, Bioshock Infinite, you quickly leave this garden, that seems appropriate, and you um, begin to interact with the people. It's really a wonderful city that you walk through. It's really a real Americana. But you quickly begin to notice that underneath it is racial segregation. And it is dramatic. And it is, yeah. it is blunt. And the more, you look behind, the more you look at it, the more, uh, the more you see it until eventually you start um, trying to overthrow, overthrow it. And um, the city, the city of Columbia is built upon the backs of um, slavery and um, uh, exploitation. And that's what makes the game uncomfortable. And it's supposed to. And, and then, of course, it's awesome in, in its terms of its science fiction. But what's cool about it is that it doesn't, you don't feel like you don't feel like you're being lectured out or preached to because it's a fantastic science fiction. There's this wonderful relationship between the girl that he finds um, that he's trying to save and Booker, the main character. It's in my top ten list of games of all time, and it's one of the rare opportunities, Eric, that I get to bring art to our conversation. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I, I support games as art, even though I don't consume them myself. <laughs> Because my parents wouldn't buy me a Nintendo. So the reason this all came up is because um, I believe you um, commented on a, on a tweet 
and I saw the tweet, and the tweet was by a Dr. Benjamin Park. Yes, this was almost a year ago. Huh? Um, Benjamin Park August. was actually going to be here um, recently to promote his new book, Kingdom of Nauvoo, but uh, unfortunately the pandemic put an end to his visit. That's too bad. Have Which you is met why I don't know. I was going to buy the book and have him sign it, but he didn't come, so I haven't bought it yet. <laughs> have you met Dr. Park before? No, I haven't. We bumped into each other on Twitter a couple times. I'm, mm -hmm. We know a lot of people in common, but I wouldn't say we know each other. All right. He's the author of The Kingdom of Nauvoo. He's an assistant professor at, at Houston State. Um, he's a founder of the Junto blog, and he co-edits the Mormon Studies Review. So that's his kind of CV. And he put up a thread. So the thread that he put on Twitter, which again, we're going to put in the show notes, was um, rebutting a talk from Clark Hinckley, son of the former uh, President Hinckley, and um, apparently author of a book called Christopher Columbus, A Man Among the Gentiles. And he spoke about the importance of Columbus in Education Week on Wednesday, August 21st of last year. So I really want to preface this conversation, Eric, by yeah. saying President Hinckley is one of my favorite prophets in the world. Great person. Very important in my life as well. He's very important in my life, like you say. And um, I just love the man. And I loved him all through my kit, through my um, young adult life. So um, his son, Clark Hinckley, gave this talk about Christopher Columbus. And... Well, Ben Park didn't like it. <laughs> no, and and rightly so. Um, there's there's a trend in conservative circles, um, like Newt Gingrich, for instance, has a series of books, and um, and Glenn Beck, and and but there are LDS writers also, and you can buy these books at general at at Desert Book if you get the catalog sent to your house. You'll see them where they uh, you know talk about. Um, okay, so there's this guy named Timothy Ballard, and he writes books such as The Washington Hypothesis, but by the time you and I are dead, he will have written 7,500 of these, and you can just input the founding father of your choice hypothesis, and each of them is essentially about how um, God turned this person into a de facto Mormon and uh, put them on the earth to accomplish all these wonderful things, and et cetera, et cetera, and um, abuses the boundaries of proper historical research shamelessly. <laughs> and, uh, there, there'll be various things like, um, like angels and whatnot that aren't really um, historically sound. If, if you, uh, Artist Parshall has written some takedowns of these books. Um, this is a Mormon guy and essentially he's turning each founding father that hits his fancy into a de facto prophet, um, a de facto um, touched by God and pulled from the reeds sort of person. And the civic religion is, the civic religion has sort of become the religion for a lot of people. And we, and there are, let's see, one, two, three. In the first page of results, there are three books lauding Christopher Columbus as sent by God. Three books on and Desert Books, first page of results, but at least three books calling so, Christopher Columbus God's own errand boy. Um, I think it's interesting to ask the question, um, two questions. Why does this pervasive 
Mormon belief about Christopher Columbus, Columbus um, exist. Okay, because this thread from Ben Park is about that. Um, yes. Sorry. I'm not on first name basis with Benjamin, Dr. Benjamin Park. <laughs> he seems like a nice guy. I don't think he'll mind. So the article by Clark Hinckley um, talks about Christopher Lum Columbus and says, um, and has language in it. Um, like only in the post 1492 world can the gospel be preached to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, right? This web of contact has become so profound today that a missionary assigned to Libsyn or Los Angeles or London is likely to meet and teach people from every continent, Hinkley said. The fact that the gospel is being preached to all nations and that there are Latter-day Saints congregations on every continent is in part the legacy of Christopher Columbus. And then later on, what he does is he, is he quotes 1 Nephi 13, 12, which I'm going to read right now in its entirety. And this is, we should give some background. This is Nephi, and it's one of his visions. Okay. And Nephi says, And I looked and beheld a man among the Gentiles, who was separated from the seed of my brethren by the many waters. And I beheld the Spirit of God, that it came down and wrought upon the man. And he went forth upon the many waters, even unto the seed of my brethren who were in the promised land. Okay. So the prevailing wisdom in the church is that the man in this scripture is Christopher Columbus. To the point where in the 1897 edition of the Book of Mormon, okay, Orson yeah. Hyde added a footnote where he said that this was Christopher Columbus. Okay? Yeah. And I have a, I have a source for that, and I'll make sure to include it. So what um, Clark Hinckley said, why did Nephi single out only Christopher Columbus in his abbreviated account of the Restoration? Hinckley said, perhaps it is because no other single individual did more to prepare the way for the last dispensation than did Christopher Columbus. I believe Columbus matters because in a very real sense, uh, as Nephi suggests, the restoration begins with him. This is enormously problematic, as Dr. Park will explain, but it, it, here, here's the simple version for why it troubles me. Um, it Again, suggests, love, love President Hinckley, right? Oh, right. This is not about him. It's about his kid who, I forget his first name, it was like Clark. Damon Hinckley or something. Oh, Clark, sorry. And so... The problem, of course, is that this reduces God in a very serious way to the point of being irreligious, in my opinion. Um, you're saying that either um, God has no way to preach the gospel to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people without sending a genocidal maniac across an ocean and beginning and, and seeding destruction of an entire continent. Either that's true. Or um, God, who controls everything, and handpicked this one person because he was the only one who could do it, um, likes that, right? So either that was his only option, or he's, you know, that's, that's the way he likes to do things. Um, which comes back to our Red Ball episode a long time ago. Like, what are we saying about God if we say that Columbus is the way God likes to work? So let's be very clear. Um... If you go to the Wikipedia article on Christopher Columbus, what you'll find is, um, well, a lot of controversy, <laughs> to put it lightly, right? 
he um, set sail. He uh, did four voyages. Um, it's argued that he discovered America, but he there were lots of people there already, so that doesn't even mean. So that doesn't even make any sense. And then what he did was, um, you know, and he did it because he loved the Catholic Church, right? And he saw himself as a man of God. And well, then he just, maybe. well, according he, he to his book. He said that. He did say that, yes. He did say but that. But keep in mind that, that, that his book is propaganda he wrote to try to get himself out of trouble. Yeah, because he did get arrested for being a tyrant. Right, and, for being a horrible person. And in 1490s, early 1500s Europe, being a horrible person was, you know, that was a pretty high bar. <laughs> so he enslaved lots of people. And he, there's a, listen, when your Wikipedia article, okay, when you, when, and you know, in 30 years, when you've really made it and you've got your own <laughs> Wikipedia article, maybe you already have one. Do you have one? I don't. Yeah, I mean, this is how you make it in life today is if you have that's a right. Wikipedia article. You don't want the word genocide on it. Okay. No, that's a good thing to avoid. Unless like you <laughs> prevented genocide or maybe that context would be fine. Yeah. So the section, there's a section here on legacy, right? And it goes through various things. He's a discoverer, right? He yes. um, discovered sure. America. Sure. That's good what it him. says. Right. And then yep. also um, the Taino genocide, right? Mm -hmm. So according to the historian, uh, you know, big long name, um, 56 years after Columbus landed on this one island, um, the, uh, and fewer of over 500 Taino were living on the island, right? Mm -hmm. And the initial population was several hundred thousand to more than a million, depending on your estimates. Yeah. So nobody knows how many of them just died to plague, right? Yeah, it's right. But you're talking about a person who on the voyage back, made sure he had some young girls for his crew to use as sex slaves, right? Yeah. Like, even if he didn't intentionally kill hundreds of thousands of people, he wasn't the sort of person who um, sweated the details of morality. Okay, so historian Andres Resendez of University of California, Davis, pushes back against the narrative of diseases. Again, quoting oh, Wikipedia. Okay and says that the available evidence suggests that slavery has emerged as a major killer of the indigenous populations of the Caribbean, more so than diseases such as smallpox, influences, and malaria. He says that they did not experience a rebound like the European population did following the Black Death because unlike the latter, the former were subjected to deadly labor in gold and silver mines on a massive scale, forced labor. Yeah. Right, and so that sounds he, like Europe at the time. He established this system, this system of sub subjugation. He sent like thousands of people home as slaves. Every time he made a stop, it seems like I read the whole article um, uh -huh. this this evening. Right, and, it seems, and every single it seems like everywhere he went, he just picked up a few more slaves, added them to the hold, and just kept going. Right, right. Um, I have problems with Christopher Columbus. <laughs> <laughs> there's it's it's crazy to pretend he was a good person um like you if you want to admit he's a bad person and still say god used him at least i'm i'm more willing to listen to that but to claim that god used him therefore he's a good person that that just shows an appalling ignorance of reality or an, an appalling uh moral laxness um or flexibility 
if you, if Christopher Columbus can be a good person. When I saw this um, Twitter thread by uh, Dr. Park, it just stuck in my head and it became immediately something I wanted to talk about because I recognized that in my own brain, deep in my Mormon brain, yeah. there was this understanding that in second, in first Nephi, Nephi talks about Christopher Columbus and um, that it was just, that was just, that was it. That was the fact. But now I look at all this research and this, some of this research came out like really recently, like 2006, they discovered this report of where um, Columbus was put on trial and like all these witnesses came up against him talking about his atrocities. Right. Yeah. And he may have been thrown under the bus a little bit, but, but yeah, there's plenty of evidence that he was a monster. Okay. And yet, so one of the, on face and hat, I love cognitive dissonance. Okay. (laughs) This kind I try to seek it out because I think it's super interesting and fun. And I think that as, as, as members of a church who believes in um, real revelation and real, a real Godhood, right? Yeah. That we have to be honest. So, Christopher Columbus, according to President Woodruff, appeared in a dream to President Woodruff, mm-hmm. and was one with all the founding fathers and other eminent men, as it's as it's described, and asked why their names hadn't been done in the temple. And in response to this vision, President uh, Woodruff went and made sure that all those names were were done. Right? Yeah, I have, I pulled up a list, the longest list I've ever seen from a group called the Joseph Smith Foundation. Um, it's, and I'm I'm not exactly sure who they are, um, but it is the most thorough list I've ever seen. Um, it's, it's on the show notes if you want to look for it. So just from the family of George Washington instead alone, I see 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, plus others um, who are on the list of eminent spirits who are baptized because of this um, revelation he had, the vision. Signers of the Declaration of Independence um, and some of their wives. Uh, it's a very long list. It goes on and on and on. Uh, ben Franklin was made a high priest, incidentally. Uh, presidents of the United States to this point, excepting three and several of their wives. Other eminent men and women, including um, actors and authors and industrialists and various generals and admirals and scientists and um, of, in the navigator explorer section of of how they organize things. There's Columbus and Amerigo Vespucci. Um, who, who America is named after. That's correct. Uh, it's a long list. Robert Burns is on here for those of you who uh, like the phrase of mice and men. Um, Martin Luther. It's a it's an insanely long list. I see Daniel Webster. Um, it adds up to about 100 men and about 70 women. Yeah, and so it, it does raise sort of a practical question. Like when this revelation happened, did he, hey, Jane Austen and Charlotte Bronte, look at that, (laughs) Thackeray, Sir Walter Scott. So uh, it raises the interesting question, like, did he make eye contact and introduce himself to every single one of these people? 
President Woodruff? Or were there a handful of them? And then from there, like he put together the list or, you know, I don't know anything about the nature of this revelation. Like we've learned a lot about how Joseph Smith received various revelations and we still don't understand Joseph Smith's revelations very well. So um, it does, it raises interesting questions like, did Frederick the Great specifically say, hey, I'm Frederick the Great? You know, Stonewall Jackson's on this list. Mm-hmm. Um, here's, what, here's what he said. He said, every one of these men that signed the Declaration of Pendants with General Washington called upon me as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ in the temple at St. George two consecutive nights and demanded at my hands that I should go forth and attend to the ordinances of the house of God with, for them. I straightway went into the baptismal font and called upon Brother McAllister to baptize me for the signers of the Declaration of Independence and 50 other eminent men, making 100 in all, including John Wesley, Columbus, and others. So it is a bit unclear to me when I read this whether Columbus was one of the spirits that appeared to President Woodruff. But, um, so I don't know, but I think that's a bit wishy-washy. Yeah, I do wonder so, how John Wesley feels being next in line to Christopher Columbus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't know the I don't know the answer to that. And I don't think we can know the answer to that. But I do think that our faith's um, sort of universalist tendencies of believing that anyone can repent and baptism is available even after you have passed away, and so forth. Um, like I'm okay with the idea that he could have found the errors of his ways and in death have become a better person and drawn on the power of the atonement. Like that doesn't, that doesn't trouble me. Um, But that doesn't make him a good person when he was alive. And it doesn't make him the basis of civil religion. Yeah. God's chosen vessel. I mean, even someone like Washington, whom I praised earlier in our conversation, um, had over 100 slaves, right? The number mm-hmm. I saw earlier today was 123, though. I'm, that's a little too precise for my tastes because I imagine slaves came and slaves went. Um, so let's talk about the problem of, of deification of Christopher Columbus because okay. it's a real problem. And, we're go- and, um, and maybe I should prove it before we talk about why it's a problem. So um, there, there's this thing that happened with President Woodruff, right? And um, as part of this, what happened was that people knew about this, right? And um, this was, uh, so what what was the date of this? Let's let's, let's make sure we know what the date was that this happened. Oh, I just shut that window down. This was 1877. Okay. Okay. Bro, that's interesting. That's right around the time of the bicentennial, or the, sorry, the centennial, mm-hmm. which may have been why it was on his mind. So I wanted to learn some more about First Nephi um, thirteen twelve. Okay. Okay. And so I just started searching for it. And what I found, I found a website called gospeldoctrine.com. Now it appears to be a legit Mormon website. Okay. Not a website maintained by the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but a website put together by people who just want to study the Gospels. Okay. Okay. The meaning Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? No, the Gospel. Sorry. The, you know, our church and our scriptures. And okay. Things. Gotcha. Okay. And on this website is, it, is two references 
to um, Reynolds and Sajodal, Commentary of, on the Book of Mormon, Volume 1. Have you heard of this book? No. Give me the title again. Reynold, Reynolds and Sajodal, Commentary. How do you spell that? Yeah, it's hard to spell. Yeah, here's the I'm link right here. So who is this man among the Gentiles? Is the is the question. So George Reynolds was an awesome Mormon. Okay. So he is the guy, the polygamist, that was tried in the Supreme Court. Oh, so this is an old Book of Mormon commentary. This is the from what I understand, the original Book of Mormon commentary. Okay. Interesting. While he was in prison for polygamy, he studied the scriptures a lot. And yeah. he had pages and pages and pages. Of it's either notes. do that or do push-ups. It was either that or do push-ups. And he had a terrible environment. And eventually they gave him a better one. So I'm going to put in the show notes this 1986 article that talks about George Reynolds as a loyal friend of the Book of Mormon. And okay. he wrote this commentary and it was published. And in this commentary are lots of quotes. And he, George Reynolds, says that during, um, that he talks about, he just names, names um, the man among the Gentiles as Christopher, Christopher Columbus, right? Yeah. And he, in, in the commentary, he says, Columbus wrote upon one occasion to King Ferdinand, I came to your majesty as the emissary of the Holy Ghost. Right. Okay. So that, and he says that Columbus considered himself inspired as well, authenticated history. Right. Yeah. And so this commentary establishes Columbus as this man from the book of Mormon, that who the spirit moved upon and sent among, among, among the, um, to the, to the promised land. Right. Yeah. So this is what I mean by there's a long history in the church of not only um, venerating Christopher Columbus, but assuming that he is this person in First in Nephi. Well, I want to point out real quick that Mormons didn't invent this either, right? Like a lot of Americans believe that they were the chosen land. I mean, um, you know, our ancestors who came over on the Mayflower, Aaron, uh-huh. uh, believed that they were coming to a promised land that God had made for them. Mm-hmm. And so the, the idea of venerating Columbus wasn't new. I mean, Washington, D.C. was almost named Columbia, right? Like the, this is something Americans are, or excuse me, that Mormons are picking up from their fellow Americans as well. Yeah. And they're seeing the Book of Mormon as a proof text for something they already think is true. So um, Ben Park says this. He says that we should rank, recognize that the sanctification of Columbus in Anglo-American thought was a cultural construct. Early Americans were searching for a founder that was distinct from the British for whom they just succeeded, seceded. And on Wikipedia for Columbus, um, it says the following. Historically, the English had downplayed Columbus and emphasized the role of the Venetian John Cabot as a pioneer explorer. But for the emerging United States, Cabot made a poor national hero. Okay, so I don't know why this guy, they decided they rejected him. He wasn't British either, but um, essentially- There's a fine cheese company named after him, Aaron. 
I, did, I, did, I, didn't, I didn't remember that. I wasn't, I wasn't prepared for that comment. That one, that one hit me. That one hit me like a train coming in my, the wrong direction. My dad would always buy the extra sharp cheddar from the Cabot Cheese Company from Vermont. It's very important <laughs> cheese in my personal history. Oh, that's great. I believe it's the cheese Nephi was talking about, though I'm a bit shaken by our conversation. <laughs> okay, so Columbus is built up as this as this guy. That's the big deal, right? Yeah. And, and and Mormons pick it up, and then this there's this commentary, and there's this. So you can follow the direct the trajectory to August 2019 to when Clark Hinckley makes yeah. this talk. This is why it's so dangerous to know things are true, Aaron, because. As soon as you know something, you never have to question that idea again. And what happens? A hundred years pass, and Christopher Columbus is absolutely no question the guy in the Book of Mormon because my dad said it, and his dad said it, and his dad said it, and nobody questions it. And so let's talk about why it's a problem. We've already talked about that he was this genocidal maniac. Yeah, he was <laughs> just not a good person. Like, there's just no way around that. He was terrible. <laughs> Okay, so what Ben says is that, can we talk about this for a bit? Because not only does the Columbus was a man of God narrative need to stop, but it is a perfect example of how we read racism into the scriptures and simultaneously our culture. Yes. Right? So then Ben goes through and kind of picks this talk apart and, and, it, and it's a pretty good, pretty good thing. One part in it that I wanted to hit upon was that, um, was that, Clark Hinckley uses the following phrase, um, Columbian exchange, okay? Mm. Right, and I just wanted to bring this up as an example of colonialism, right, and why it was such yeah. a problem. So he says that, the, so this isn't Ben, this is Clark. Um, again, I'm a first name basis with these guys, apparently. Hey, it's a podcast, it's the most intimate of mediums. <laughs> That's right. The fact that you today can purchase a Big Mac in Mexico, Malaysia, or Moscow is part of the legacy of Columbus a legacy that historians refer to as the Colombian exchange. Can you imagine if I couldn't get a Big Mac in Mexico? <laughs> that's, that's not God's true. <laughs> Go oh my gosh. Go ahead and click on this article about Colombian exchange. Okay. Uh, the the um, Wikipedia one you have open or here, yeah. have here? Go ahead, there's a Wikipedia article called Colombian exchange. Go yes, ahead and pop I would it already be just... there if I had spelled Colombian correctly, but I left out the B, so. Okay, I'm there now. Go ahead and tell us what, on section number two, what the subject headings are under Columbian Exchange. Oh, uh, so we have crops, including rice, fruits, and tomatoes. That's right. Can you imagine Italian food without tomatoes? That's right. Thank you, Columbus. Right. We have livestock. Full, full disclosure, <laughs> I actually think that this part of the exchange is good. Like, I appreciate that food moved around the planet. Okay. Yeah. I actually think that this is, that's a good thing. Go ahead. Yeah, what I, is, I don't have a problem with that. Um, so we have crops, we have livestock, we have disease, and we have slavery and other cultural exchanges. Right. So the phrase Columbian exchange has a couple positive connotations, but I think to historians, they would say that it's a pretty negative term now, right? Well, yeah. If you want to give it a better name, that might help. But um, Well, it's globalization, right? It is globalization, and I'm pro-globalization, I think, and I believe we've talked about this before, as so we talk about the world getting better and better and better. A lot of that stuff is because of globalization. So let's touch briefly on disease. Um, 
you watched a video before we started. Can you describe it? Yes. So um, it was called American Pox, and it was about why the diseases that came from the old world were so much more devastating than the diseases that left the new world for the old world. The only real disease I know of, and this wasn't mentioned in the video, but the only one I know of really that went uh, from the new world to the old world was um, syphilis. And when syphilis first showed up in Europe, it was an awful disease where it would make people grotesque and ugly. But as a as a sexually transmitted disease, syphilis quickly learned that turning people into monsters um, with their skin sloughing off was not really a good way to spread. So syphilis toned down, evolved into a much more um, subtle disease. Whereas meanwhile, in the new world, smallpox is killing everyone. Entire civilizations will fall yeah. from it and the other diseases. It's really hard to overstate how powerful this effect was. So 90% it's, it's so of the population. To, yeah, possibly. I mean, we don't know, right? So many people disappeared that we can't know. Like they're, by orders of magnitude, we don't know how many Americans died before the white people even showed up. So we by the, t- by the time the conquistadores, by the time all this stuff started really happening, the yeah. battle was over already. Yeah. Nine, the entire Mississippi culture was millions. gone of yeah. people died to plague. Right. And um, I, so, <laughs> and for some reason, I didn't learn this in school. <laughs> um, I, I, only, I only heard about this, about, about this plague. I don't know. It definitely reveal me as very uneducated, right? <laughs> I knew that Merrick, I knew that, you know, there was, there was plagues and things that they, people talk about, but nobody seemed to really, when I was a kid, nobody talked about the scale of the devastation. Right. Yeah, when, when I heard about it in school as a kid, it was about how like settlers might send smallpox blankets as a gift to mm-hmm. wipe out a small tribe. But I didn't understand that the entire plains had been peopled. Yeah. And the reason it was empty when white people first showed up wasn't because nobody had ever lived there, but because they'd already been killed by the advanced march of disease. So yeah, the, the version I heard about in school was much more small in comparison to the reality, but it's also much more intentional than the reality, which I guess, I don't know, spin that however you want. I remember uh, my parents, I, I th- it was in US history, so junior year of high school, um, my teacher was doing some sort of simulation. I think it was about the civil rights movement. I'm a little embarrassed to tell this story on my parents, but I was not allowed to participate in the simulation. They would not sign the, um, the form. So instead, every day during that period, I would go to the library and I read uh, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, which I don't know if you're familiar with that book, Aaron. Um, It's about the intentional genocide by American citizens of Native Americans. And it is horrifying, the stories in there of intentional genocide. Um, Some images have stuck with me forever, like the, the settler who made a coin purse out of, out of the scrotum he cut off an Indian he had murdered. Um, horrible, vulgar, evil things. And yet um, the Native Americans who were left to be destroyed in such brutish, uncouth, unchristian fashion were only the small minority that survived the diseases that showed up long before the people from Europe showed up. Which again, a lot of those atrocities are the same ones that Columbus did. Yeah. So, so the video is 
Um, America Pox, The Missing Plague is by CPG Gray and it's gonna be in the show notes. And it's a fascinating video. You'll learn about domestication of animals and about all kinds of things that, that um, about why the, why the Americas didn't send a plague back to the, back to the, uh, back to Europe. It's a fascinating story. Yeah. And, and if you're into that, um, about 20 years ago, a book came out by Jared Diamond called Guns, Germs, and Steel, which you tell me the video is based on. And I which think that it had references that essentially. Completely remade the way I understand history. And 20 years have passed. And so I know that um, we've grown since then. And, and the book is not maybe as cutting edge as it, as it was in 2000 or whatever year it was it came out. Uh, but it's still a great book and it really opened my mind. And, and I, it was a good read. I recommend it. Let me just verify that that um, video. Oh, well, while you're doing that, maybe I could say something along the lines of that we at Face and Hat are a proud member of the Dialogue family of podcasts. That's right. Um, a couple of days ago, I was listening to one of our co-Dialogue podcasts, the Mormon News Report. Yes, I always want to call it the Mormon News something else. But mm -hmm. the Mormon News Report, um, I was listening to and... Um, Actually, I can't remember if I, I it's oh. been a while since we last recorded, but they yeah, recently Guns, suggested us also. Guns, Germs, Guns, Germs and, and Steel. It's a great yeah, book. Cited, cited by it. Okay, yeah. go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, I was just, I was just pitching Mormon News Report. They, I believe they're a weekly show and they read all the news related to Mormon stuff and stay on top of it. They also have a Sunday school that they're doing now, like a lot of podcasts are doing. So. Okay, excellent. So. So that's the Columbian Exchange part of it. Of course, the other part of it is globalization and the slave trade, which leads us to the situation we're in right now. Yes, yeah, no, um, yes, absolutely right. Um, the echoes of that are still very loud. So let's talk again about Benjamin Park. Okay. He has a Twitter thread that's at the very bottom of the show notes. And um, he just posted it 12 hours ago and it's, um, oh, I saw you link to that. I haven't, I haven't clicked on it yet. Let's go ahead and open it together then. Okay. And because it's about um, Mormon leadership and um, their relationship with, um, with racism, right? Yes. Specifically, it talks about Ezra Taft Benson, right? Mm -hmm. A man named um, um, Hubie Brown. Hubie Brown, right? yeah. He's going to be the hero of the story, I can tell already. Yeah. So I'm just going to quote from Ben here. It's been heartbreaking to see so much pain and anguish this weekend, and tragic that a principle as simple as Black Lives Matter is still so contested. As a historian, I immediately thought of precedents, so I thought I'd share some lessons from my Mormon America re research. Right? Yeah. Many have shown connections to the 1968 racial riots that similarly inflamed the nation also an election year. Just so happens that I'm currently working on Mormonism in the 1960s. What is so startling is how many different Mormon perspectives there were in 1968, including on the diversive topic of race, right? It was a culture of yeah. transition, essentially. So Ezra Taft Benson was a vocal proponent of far-right views, right? Yes. And he consistently associated with the John Birch movement, which I don't know anything about, and had uh, to be reeled in yeah. often. Yes, yes, he was a bit controversial. Okay. Even for a conservative group of people. Right, so he denounced the civil rights movement as puppets of the communists and declared Martin Luther King 
as a threat to society. Okay, so he yeah. was checked by Hugh B. Brown, who was a counsel in the first presidency. And, and a Canadian, let's be honest. I don't know that he counts. <laughs> That's great. Okay, he was succeeded in convincing President McKay not to follow Benson's lead. Yes, and if you're into this, can I recommend the excellent book, David O. McKay and the Rise of Modern Mormonism? There's a fascinating blow-by-blow uh, blow based on the notes of the arguments over race um, within the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve at this time. It is, it is an incredible read. But anyway, go ahead. Okay. Yet, I'm quoting again from Dr. Park. Yet, while Brown often succeeded at softening Benson's blow, he was dedicated enough to the institution of the church, I assume, that he rarely spoke out publicly. And when he did say something that the press jumped on, he quickly backtracked. He prized stability over radical reform, right? Yes. And, this, the end, and then he says, the end result of this is silence. Yeah. Um, can I give you a similar example from the similar time period that I picked up from that book I just mentioned? Please. Um, so as I'm sure you know, when Bruce R. McConkie published Mormon Doctrine, it, it, was, it was problematic. Um, he, first submitted, he first shared it with members of the Twelve, and they found over 11,000 errors in the book, and they were very unhappy with it and said it can't be published as is. He decided to publish it anyway. President McKay uh, chastised him privately, but refused to say anything publicly. And so he didn't republish the book. Wait, wait uh, can you just say what the book was again? Mormon Doctrine. Oh, okay. You know Mormon Doctrine. Of course. Um, I think maybe readers. Uh, sorry, oh, that's sorry. true. So, so Mormon Doctrine. Yeah, well, if, I, if you had not heard of it and you heard that there was a book called Mormon Doctrine published by an apostle, what might you suspect of such a book, Aaron? I'd expect it to be excellent. Yeah, you would expect it to be authoritative and correct. You wouldn't expect it to be something that the other apostles thought was riddled with errors and a grave, grave danger. Um, a and grave yeah, that's, danger. Yeah, and, and he published it anyway. He was reprimanded by President McKay, um, and it was allowed to fall out of print. But towards the end of David O. McKay's life, when he was very old and fairly addled and um, not very skilled at holding on to thoughts for long periods of time. Uh, Elder McConkie visited him privately and left with permission to republish the book. Um, and once again, Mormon doctrine goes out into the world seeming very authoritative and, um, and it remains that, get, contain, holds on to that sort of aura for decades. Um, and so, yeah, the people like Hubie Brown and David O. McKay who, who prize um, strength of institution and being together above all else can very easily be overwhelmed by voices that will speak even if they are not approved of. Even in something like the 12 apostles, right? Like, I mean, what more laudatory body could there be on this earth than the 12 apostles? Mm -hmm. And yeah, even there, that sort of thing can happen. I believe, and maybe and we'll cut this if I'm not right, but didn't some of the Mormon doctrine ideas, aren't they some of the things that got just recently expunged from a misprinted copy of, Goss, of, our, of our Sunday School manual? Um, I believe so, though I would have to look it up to swear. I, I think I do have a copy of Mormon doctrine in the garage somewhere. Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of 
there are certainly racist theories promoted in the book, although I cannot remember how explicitly. So eventually we did get our proclamation too, right? We did. And blacks did get the priesthood. And it was brought by um, President Lee, who had was quite opposed to, or I'm sorry, it was not brought by President Lee. What am I saying? <laughs> he died. It was brought by President Kimball. Never mind. Expunge that from the record. <laughs> um, so we did get it, but um, boy, if there aren't still problems. Oh, for sure. And if you think there aren't, well, you know. Look at the, how many, look at the news. How many Black Letter Day Saints do you know? Yeah, not so many, unfortunately. So, um, yeah. And so now we find ourselves in a situation where George Floyd died and um, uh, because of um, a policeman and we have these protests and we have all this confusion going on. And this confusion, like there's reports of people, of like white people who are bringing bricks to protests, right? So that they'll become violent, right? And, be, and, inc yeah. and inciting it and, and to essentially muddle the message, right? And I don't know if those reports are true. They look true. Um, but Well, I did watch some footage out of Salt Lake City of a um, tall, strong-looking African-American fellow who was pleading with um, some white men not to cause problems because we will take the blame for it. You will break things and we'll be the ones who get blamed. Um, certainly, there's so many witnesses of it. It's hard to believe that that isn't happening. I, How much it's whole, happening, I guess, is debatable. But it, but my point is that this so is so confusing that it's hard to even come up with it. And the same thing is here with Christopher Columbus, right? I'm just going to give a quote from the teachings of President Ezra Taft Benson. Okay. All right. And this is in the show notes. All right, the temple work for the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence and other founding fathers has been done. All these appeared to Wilford Woodruff when he was president of the St. George Temple. President George Washington was ordained a high priest at this time. You will also be interested to know that according to Wilford Woodruff's journal, John Wesley, Benjamin Franklin, and Christopher Columbus were also adorned high priests at this time. And here's the quote that I highlighted in red in our show notes. When one casts doubt upon the character of these noble sons of God, I believe, <laughs> I believe he or she will have to answer to the God of heaven for it. You know what? I am totally willing to do that. Okay. So I'm going to I think if it. you deify evil, you also deserve to speak to God explaining exactly how you came up with this idea. Because I do think it's a deification. I think there is absolute idolatry, uh, both in the church and in America generally. Um, one of the things that I put in the show notes was the paintings of John McNaughton, a um, Latter-day Saint artist, if you want to call him that. Um, he makes paintings. And his Say work that. is... Okay, sorry, go, go ahead. Go. Yeah, okay. his work is... His, his work is largely of two types, uh, pictures of Jesus and pictures of Trump. Um, he also makes... Um, paintings of various um, enemies of Trump who are therefore enemies of Jesus, people like Nancy Pelosi and Obama and Mitt Romney. Um, but his entire business model is based on deifying 
Donald Trump. And, and it's possible, it's possible to do this because you can steal iconography from the already existing civic religion. There's one of him um, taking the role of Washington crossing the Delaware, but he's crossing the swamp, right? There are, his paintings are, are designed to tie into this idea of, of idolatry. It's, it's an American idolatry. Who is the top of the food chain in this religion that McNaughton is promoting? It's, uh, at the moment, it's Donald Trump, God's chosen vessel. And his work is extremely troubling. And honestly, I think it's kind of cynical. I don't, I, I suspect he is to some degree a true believer, but he's oh, you clearly didn't mention just that. playing it for money. You didn't mention, you mentioned that he was LDS, right? Oh, I did. Yes. And his paintings appear in the enzyme. And every time they do, um, I feel a coldness pass through my soul. What kind of paintings? Well, you know, paintings of Jesus, mm -hmm. the second best person who's ever lived. Mm -hmm. So I have a, I can't, I mean, I'm on the, I'm on, so I, I'm in, I'm in uh, incognito mode uh -huh. on my, on my browser. <laughs> I didn't, uh -huh. I didn't want this in my search history. <laughs> I'm on I'm on his website and um yeah and we're not going to even link to it in the show notes but it is very troubling as you say idolatry so civic religion right deification of old leaders and new leaders i think it's appropriate for us to respect them right it's so sure. funny because our church <laughs> continues to struggle with questions like do you worship Mormon, right? Right. <laughs> you guys are or Joseph not, Smith. Do you? Yeah, thank you. Do you worship Joseph? You guys worship Joseph Smith, right? You worship um, these old people. You don't. You're not Christians, and you don't worship Jesus Christ. But we do. That's the name of our church. We're doing all this branding yeah. to be the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. And so, when we see this kind of deification, it is, as you say, very troubling. It's also really important to point out that a minority of church members today are Americans. Um, why? It, it doesn't make sense, right? And, and yeah, we believe in being good citizens of wherever we live, but there's a difference between being a good citizen and lying, right? Like, um, I think Jefferson was absolutely a great person. He was um, a great thinker, a great politician. He was also a slaveholder. And he... Um, engaged in sexual practices that I find worse than Woody Allen's. And so how both those things are true. Like he can be a great person and a horrible person at the same time. And the idea that, that um, Elder Benson suggested that I will have to stand before God for saying bad things about Thomas Jefferson is- That is, you, Eric Jepson, will have to right. stand. It's ludicrous. It, it's putting Thomas Jefferson on a pillar he does not belong on. And I think Thomas Jefferson would agree with that. He, he was not into deifying himself. He wasn't even into deifying Jesus. And so um, I think that it's really important that we draw some lines between what is respect and what becomes idolatry. And I do think we are absolutely talking about idolatry in the biblical sense. I think racism and white supremacy is the ultimate in cognitive dissonance, right? There's nothing in my brain that is, that makes less sense than 
this assumption of superiority, right? And this globalization, this um, deification of Columbus, which implicitly accepts all of the all of the exploitation, um, I think is a problem. So I support renaming Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day. <laughs> yeah, maybe I something think, a little catchier would catch on better, but, I but yeah, in great. theory, it's a good idea. Absolutely. And um, I support the protesters, and I think that Black Lives Matter. And I think it would be, I don't see how it would be Christian to say otherwise. Yes, and one thing that that really troubles me about the American philosophy of whiteness, um, the fact that when I fill out the census form, I ended up clicking white because I think it is important to, well, let me give you an example real quick. I, I remember about 15 years ago, there were riots in Paris and um, largely North African immigrants who were being treated very poorly by society. France, right? Who's in, you know, egalita egalitarianism and fraternity and all those things. Um, and France couldn't figure out if they were treating people equally or not because they were so equal and so colorblind that they never kept track of what race people were. And so what happened is they had an entire racial group of people that had been subliminated and pushed down by society and was now rioting to be heard and seen. And they couldn't even legally recognize what was happening because they never kept track of that. And so I do, since, since hearing about that, I've always gone ahead and marked white on official forms because it's important for our statistics to see how people are literally being treated. But I hate doing it and I hate the designation of white because it is, it is a lie and it is disingenuous. Um, and it's not the same thing. It's not like the opposite of black. It's something different. Like, like the racial identity of black um, is a real thing, right? Because of the Columbian exchange, there were people who were stripped of their own culture and their own geography and their own background and their own families and forced into a world where they created this new culture, which eventually gets called, you know, black or a lot of other things, of course. Um, I'm just using black because I want the contrast with white. Um, black is a real thing. It's a real identity because it was created when people's own identities were destroyed. And this is what grew up in the, from the ashes. Whereas white is no such thing. Um, I know where my ancestors came from. Uh, both you and I, as mentioned earlier, have ancestors that came over on the Mayflower. I can track my ancestry to England. I can track it to Germany. I can track it to Denmark. I know who my people are. There's no um, secret about my identity. Yeah, William Brewster was one of the people on the Mayflower. He was the That's priest. Right. And I come down through William Bradford, which probably means we share a lot of relatives because I'm <laughs> sure there's some marrying going on in those first couple hundred years. You notice when um, I said that, I descend from William Brewster, the pride that was in my voice. Yeah, and why not? Th those mm -hmm. were decent people. Um, the next generation of, of, you know, their kids ended up sort of screwing things up with the Native Americans. That reminds me of another great book called Mayflower. I'll, I'll put a lot of book links in the show notes. Um, but, but then what happens is there's this thing called Black in America, right? And it is a group of people with a legitimate identity created from the ashes. And the uh, and what happens is that Americans want to keep this group of people 
down. And so who qualifies as white, which is defined as being not black, changes through the years, right? People get added to whiteness, people get taken out of whiteness. Um, Mormons were taken out of whiteness for a while. Um, just as an example, the Irish weren't white for a long time. Um, and so- <laughs> Which is, is called out in Bioshock Infinite, by the way. Oh, is it? Yeah. Yeah, but, but the one group of people that has never been welcomed into white is the people we call black. And so there is this, and that's why I hate the word white because I'm not white. Like I can trace my identity. Um, the word white exists. It's, it's really just code for not black, not those people. And that, and so just, it's built into our language. This racism is built into the American discourse and it's a very hard thing to escape. Like the best thing you can do is to be honest and say it exists and see what you can do to fight it. But it doesn't, it doesn't disappear. And, and this is a very ancient human impulse too. I mean, if we look back at what Nephi said, and I'm stealing this uh, notion from the Book of Mormon for the Least of These by Fatima Saleh and, and Margaret Olson Hemming, which is a terrific book that I highly recommend. Um, it's another Book of Mormon commentary, but it only goes through um, Omni so far, I believe. Or I mean, no, I don't have it in front of me, something like that. Uh, but Nephi has just, when, when the Columbus thing happens, right? He's just discovered that his people will be destroyed and he sees this person coming and um, the primary thing that he identifies about the Gentiles, as he calls them, that they were white and exceedingly fair and beautiful like unto my people before they were slain. Nephi is focusing on how these new people are like his people and he's dealing with a very surface trait to make that observation. Um, and what's going to happen? Um, they're going to come and destroy his brother's people. And that's great because they're the ones who killed my people. In, in another book um, that I'm reading right now called The Lost 116 Pages by Don Bradley, he, he points out something I never noticed before, probably because I'm no scholar. But the River Sidon in the Book of Mormon, it serves as a demarcation between Lamanite lands and Nephite lands. But Sidon is a biblical word, and it is a geographical location that separates the Israelites from the other people in Palestine, the people who deserve to be destroyed. And so even though they are family, the Lamanites and the Nephites, the Nephites give this river a name that designates the othering of the Lamanites and creates this, this racial, even though they are the same family, it creates this racial identity that if you tie it to the biblical stories, relates them more to those foreigners that God told us to kill. Um, this is an ancient problem. This isn't something we invented, like hating people because they're different or even just treating them a little less well because they are different is ancient. And it's something as Christians that we need to be overcoming. Um, the pe people in the Book of Mormon failed to do that and didn't turn out so great for them. So I think that the way we overcome it is by talking about it. I think avenues like this one where we get to actually talk about something in public are good. Look, I, I am not a scholar, right? I'm a, I'm a computer scientist. I'm a chemist. I'm a crystallographer. A Just the wrong kind to be doing not this show. Not a religious scholar. <laughs> I, I don't know the right language to use. I don't know how to express the feelings that I have. All I can do is look at what's happening at these protests and it just breaks my heart and makes me wanna, makes me wanna cry. Um, I remember the very first time I saw a black person. I remember it very vividly because I had never seen one before. I, I had up, a similar experience in fifth grade. 
fifth grade. Yeah, mine was at in elementary school and I was in a public swimming pool and a family of um, black folk just jumped right into the pool, right? And I looked over at my mom and I was like, well, what's going on? Who? Uh-huh. <laughs> and she was like, oh, and what she said to me was the following. Uh-huh. She said, those, just, those people just have a different color of their skin and that's all there is to it. And I was like, okay, great. And then I never thought about it again for years. I just accepted that. I internalized it and it was wonderful, right? Because I was innocent. Yeah. I didn't have that innocence shattered until I was in high school when I learned about the American um, Revolution and the Civil War and slavery and everything like that. And there was a period in my life when I thought, when I was a bit bitter about that because I felt like it would have been better if nobody had ever taught me anything about the subject because I wouldn't have, I would have been able to have no bias, right? Essentially not literally not being able to notice if someone was, if someone was black and white, because to me, the difference didn't matter. It was only later that I realized that that attitude was totally wrong. (laughs) Yeah. That we have to learn about it, that we have to talk about it. We have to talk about racism within our, our, country and its history. We have to talk about colonialism and globalization and um, problems within our own church culture and art that is problematic, that has directly led to suffering. And otherwise, otherwise there's no way for, um, for change to happen. Yeah. um, People who uh, love that the idea of being colorblind are engaged in a form of self-deception, right? Like society is not colorblind. So if you are choosing to be colorblind, you're not part of the solution. And I recognize that I'm gonna get it wrong. I mean, I'm sure President, uh, uh, so sorry, um, Dr. Park at the end of his Twitter thread, thread showed a bunch of his responses and people responded to him using phrases like revisionist history and that he was slandering Christopher Columbus in a way that that wasn't acceptable. Yeah. And it wouldn't surprise me if there are people listening to our show. If I'm, well, thank you for coming this far along and not turning it off <laughs> earlier. But yes. that would have felt the same the same way. Like, why are we talking about, um, you know, royalty in the church this way? A Hinckley, a Benson, right? Right. A McConkie. Why are we talking about Columbus? who, you know, and, and our founding fathers who appeared as spirits to be redeemed in the temple. What, what right do we have to call these people into question? And the only thing I can say is that whatever we have been doing, it ain't working. No, we, we have, we still have problems. We have these big problems and they're systemic and they're foundational and they have to be addressed. Right. And I didn't and- realize that I felt this way by the way, uh-huh. <laughs> until I saw these, the, these tweets. It's, it's so helpful to have it laid out in a way that is understandable. Um, when, so I am 30, possibly 31 at the point of this story. I take a class on critical race theory as part of my credentialing program. And I had a really hard time understanding some of the issues that the class dealt with just because I had never been forced to deal with them. Like you, I grew up in predominantly white areas. Um, 
here's a story I like to tell. I was in fourth or fifth grade in Idaho, and it must have been Martin Luther King Day. There was a weekly reader talking about this and uh, civil rights movement, and our teacher was trying to explain it to us, and she realized suddenly she was like, "Oh wait, you guys have never met a black person." And my friend Jeremy raised his hand, like, "Yes, we have. We know Victor. Victor was in the other fifth grade classroom." She's like, "No, no, no, no. Victor's Mexican." Oh no! <laughs> so, like, we were so ignorant, right? We we really knew nothing. And then I I moved to the Central Valley of California, fifth grade year. Uh, one of my very good friends was Corey, uh, who was who was black, and um, I brought him home from school one day. Didn't think to mention to my mom that he was black, and she was a little surprised. And and she talks about that as a very growing experience for herself because she grew up in that corner of Idaho. Uh, then I then my family moves to Tatchby, where there are maybe five or maybe 10 at most black kids at our school. Um, so, so I've, it was very easy for me to assume that everything is fine. Um, but now, you know, I live in the Bay Area. I, I teach kids um, from, um, you know, the, uh, oh, I just forgot the, just forgot the name of the neighborhood in Richmond that um, gets on the news sometimes, but, you know, these, the, the legacy of, of slavery and racism in America is not over. People are still suffering. Um, and people don't just go out on the streets when there's a pandemic out and protest unless there is something to protest. Yeah, the fact that all this is happening in the middle of a pandemic, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, this is gonna have a lot of unfortunate side effects. People are saying, are wondering when the church is going to be reopening. Well, I don't know, man. Talk to me and again in two weeks when we start getting our first reports of the flare-ups from these protests. Not yes, that we shouldn't be having protests. I think the protests are important, but there's going to be consequences. Right. Um, our friend Tom in our ward at Zoom Church this past Sunday gave a talk, uh, and he mentioned this topic of, um, you know, going back to church. And he said, ultimately going to church is not the point of our religion. And he went on to talk about what the point of our religion is, right? What is the point of our religion? Well, isn't it, isn't it charity? Isn't it um, accepting our savior? Isn't it uh, loving others and caring for them and laying down our lives for our friends? Like, like these big Jesus ideas are what religion is about. It's not about saying hi to our friends at church and singing the songs we love. That, that's ancillary. Ultimately, loving God and loving our neighbor is what it's all about. So how do we do that? I mean, the only way we can do is we can is work about it, is work on it. Um, I think we should give a little bit of hope at the end of this conversation. Well, would you, would you like a suggestion on what to do? Would that be hopeful? Okay, yeah, please. So this is from at K-I-D underscore M-E-L-O-D-I-E on Twitter. Uh, Melody is an African-American saint. Um, I don't know a lot about her, so uh, it's possible I've already misspoken as to who she is, but I don't think so. I think so far I'm still accurate. She's, she's trying to promote a positive thing we can do. Um, her, her source material is from DNC 123. Uh, she quotes, therefore, it is an imperative duty that we owe not only to our own wives and children, but to the widows and fatherless whose husbands and fathers have been murdered under its iron hand, which dark and blackening deeds are enough to make hell itself shudder and to stand aghast and pell 
and the hands of the very devils to tremble and palsy. And also it is an imperative duty that we owe to all the rising generation and to all the pure in heart. Well, you can probably tell what part of church history 123 comes out of. <laughs> but she suggests uh, two, two actions. Um, the first is that um, black LDS members come together and write a letter detailing their own experiences in the church. Uh, talk of pain, talk of conflict, talk of turmoil, and then send that letter to the office of the first presidency, your stake president, and your bishops by June 8th. That is her first request. Um, secondly, she's challenging white members to make a post about Black Lives Matter and the racism plaguing the country, and then don't turn off the comments. Uh, she says, call your privilege by name, engage with the harmful comments from your loved ones, show up for us, show up with us. Um, just standing there quietly, she suggests, is not enough. Um, and she has more. We can, we can include a link to this also. Um, that sounds way outside of the comfort zone of just about everyone I know. Yeah, it's, it's pretty, it's, you know, we're, we're, we're doing the show, right? But I gotta say, it's, it's right at the border of my comfort zone, man. Well, it's dangerous, right? That's the great thing about being you or I is um, we're already in a position of comfort in our society, both both in America and in uh, the church, where we are the normal. We are, you know, to speak up for those who are at the edges is a difficult thing to do. And to speak up, not but not in place of them, right? Like to be there for them, but not to try to speak for them or to replace them or anything else. It's it's a hard thing and, and you have to be comfortable, not comfortable, but you have to be, you have to understand you'll make mistakes and say the wrong thing and cause some problems. But if you don't say anything, then we're going to be in the same world, which I think we can all agree is broken. <laughs>